have you heard the idiom, stop the music? I can remember times growing up, and my brothers and I, you're playing football in the living room, and mom's about ready to have a cow because the lamp's falling over and things are flying, you know, and she walks in the room, stop the music, what is going on in here? As we read chapter 5 tonight, this is the message. The message that Amos gives tonight is literally, stop the music. Here's what's going on. They're singing songs of praise. In fact, I would dare say that if, if the song we just sang, Here I Am to Worship, I think if this song would have been written and being sung back in that day, they probably would be singing this song in their ceremonies, in their assemblies. They were singing songs, they were giving offerings, they were having these celebrational feasts, that they were going through the spiritual motions of worshiping, and God told them, hey, stop the music, stop singing the songs. I don't want to hear your music anymore. Just stop everything, the assembly, the feast, all of it, the offering giving, stop all of it. Why? Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fatted cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Man, that's heavy stuff. God is putting his fingers in his ears and he's saying, stop the music. Stop the assemblies. Stop the offering giving. Why? Why? Here's why. Because the nation was going through the motions of worship. They're just going through the motions. But in large part, the people had a heart problem. The nation as a whole, had a heart problem. Isaiah, who also ministered, he started his prophetic ministry at the same time that Amos was ministering during the the reign of Uzziah. He delivered a very similar message to Israel. This is Isaiah 29, 13. He says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, church, listen, tonight as we, as we look at Amos chapter 5, it's really essential that we do a, a, allow the Holy Spirit to do a deep heart search in our own lives. Why? Because we can worship God and our worship not be anything that God wants to hear if our heart isn't right. Here's the big idea of the message tonight, God condemns empty, meaningless worship and demands wholehearted worship to him alone. And so the nation of Israel had heart disease. And it was so bad that it was fatal. Here's what we're going to find in Amos chapter 5. five. It was fatal. Israel's destruction is so certain that Amos grieves as though it had already taken place. And so tonight, I'll give you three thoughts. The first one is we see that that Amos gives a lamentation. Have you read the book of Lamentations? 
a lament. A lament is simply a funeral song. It's a song of mourning. It's poetry. This is chapter 5, the the first 17 verses. It's Hebrew poetry. And I won't bore you, and I'm not even going to get into the details of how that poetry is set up. But that is what Amos is doing here. He's singing this song of mourning. He says in verse number one, chapter five, verse number one, he says, listen to this message that I am singing for you, a lament house of Israel. It's likely that Amos is singing this song at one of their celebratory feasts. When you read the context, it almost seems like Amos showed up at one of these solemn assemblies that they had. He showed up at church, if you will, and he's singing this funeral song. Shows up at a party, dressed like he's going to a funeral, and he's singing a funeral song. You know what we say to that? You're bringing the monk down, right? I mean, he's bringing the whole tenor of the party down. And the, I imagine that this really ticks some people off what, what, what he's doing here. Imagine hearing someone singing a song of mourning, mourning the death of someone, and you are the person. How would that make you feel? If you're... If you're my age or older, how would that make you feel? If it was your kids and they start coming in singing funeral songs and you're sitting there, you're like, you know, I'm still breathing, right? I know you can't wait till I kick the, the bucket so you can, you know, get your hands on the coffers or whatever. You, you with me? You're like, time out. I'm not dead yet. I still got, still got some life in my bones. Imagine the nerve of pronouncing you dead when you're still quite alive. It must have been quite a shock for these worshipers to be listening to their own funeral song. It had to create a stir. And here's how his song begins. Verse 2, Israel has fallen. Virgin Israel will not rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. So what is he doing? He's singing this lament, and it's a song about Israel, describing Israel as a young virgin who has died in her prime years. You know, as a nation, Israel was still young. Israel hadn't been in the land all that long. They were still young. Nevertheless, here she's already doomed to die soon, never to rise again. What is Amos saying here? What what is being prophesied here? Not only would the the army of the northern kingdom be slaughtered and the cities and towns be destroyed, but very few people would actually survive. And Amos explains to us, he reveals to us in this song of lament, he reveals to us why. Let me tell you why he's singing this lamentation, this funeral song. Number one, he's singing this funeral song because they were substituting religious duties for real devotion. Now let that sink in for a minute. They were substituting religious duties for real devotion. It says here in verse number five, the Lord says this. He says, the Lord says to the house of Israel, verse five, do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal, or journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will come to nothing. Why is Amos listing, telling us about, why is he identifying these three particular places? 
Well, these three particular places had sacred significance to the children of Israel. Bethel, which means the house of God. You remember what happened at Bethel? This is a place where Jacob, this is the place where, where God reminded Jacob of the promise that he had made to Abraham, and he confirmed that, God, that he, was going to, he was going to make good on that promise, that he was going to uh, bless Jacob and his people and his, his descendants, and that a great nation would come from them. And so Bethel was a very sacred place from, for them. Uh, also, he mentions Gilgal. He says, don't go to Gilgal. They were going to Gilgal. They were having these celebrations. They were having these solemn assemblies. They were making these pilgrimages up to Gilgal. What, what's the significance of Gilgal? If you were with us in our Joshua series, you'll remember that when the Israelites crossed over the flooded Jordan, the first place that they set up camp was in Gilgal. And it was there where uh, God told Joshua that he was going to bless them, he was going to protect them, he was going to go before them, and he was going to conquer the land for them. That it was all in God's control that God was going to accomplish his will and give them the land. Gilgal was a very uh, sacred place to the children of Israel. So what are they doing? They're going to Gilgal. They're having these assemblies there. They're, they're going back to where God had, had moved and, and spoke to Joshua. They were also going to Beersheba. What's the deal with Beersheba? Well, that's where God spoke to Isaac. Many, many, many years, hundreds of years before this, and God told Isaac, he said, I'm the God of, of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring from my servant Abra for my servant Abraham's sake. Again, just like with Jacob at uh, Bethel, God spoke to Isaac. These were sacred places to the children of Israel. And so apparently what's going on is this. Apparently, the people of Israel were trusting in the benefits of these places rather than in the Lord. They kind of viewed it as if we can go to the place where, where God had spoken to Jacob, where God had spoken to Joshua, if, where God had spoken to Isaac, that, that God met with them there. If we go there, God will meet with us. Well, that's all nice and shiny and seems real nice, but there was a problem. The problem was the place had nothing to do with God meeting with them. The problem was their heart. Their heart. They were going to these places simply expecting God to bless them like he promised to bless Jacob and Isaac and Joshua. You see what's going on? So, do you think perhaps that this sort of thing still goes on today? Do you think so? Do you think that the American church, of which, you know, we are a part, how, how many come to a church service simply after a blessing from God? It's the place where we have our solemn assemblies, and so we come, we're, we're here, we participate, and we're expecting that if we show up to a place, somehow God is going to do something good for us. Is that, is that far-fetched? Or do you, how many of you suppose that could actually be a thing, right? 
That could actually be a thing. In fact, I dare say that it's been a thing for some of us, me included, right? At times in our lives, I think sometimes we go through religious duties, religious ceremonies. We, we go through the motion of religion without any real devotion going on in our heart. Now, do we, should we not show up simply because our heart isn't right? Well, we should get our heart right. And that's what we're going to, that's what, that's what Amos is going to get at here. But they're conducting these things in these sacred places. And look what God says. As we read there, look back at verse number 21 and 22. How does God feel about it? He hates it. He despises it. He couldn't even stand the offerings that they were giving, the grain offerings. He wouldn't accept them as legitimate sacrifices. Why? Again, because it was all done in hypocrisy. Look what happened. Look, look what was going on. Go to the end, toward the end of the chapter, chapter 5 and verse 26. But you have taken up Sacketh, your king, and Kawan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. They're going to Bethel. They're going to Gilgal and Beersheba, but what are they doing when they're there? They're worshiping other gods. They might be somehow think that they're worshiping God. Maybe what they've done is they've syncretized it. They've, they're trying to do both. They've just, they're adding the pagan gods along with God, and they're just trying to, you know, make sure that they cover all their bases, perhaps. I think that's probably what's going on here. But there's no true devotion to God. And church, this is where we have to beware. This is where we in our own lives have to recognize that it's possible for us to keep up appearances in sacred places while bowing down to the idols of our day in our own heart. Right? Are you with me? This is what, what, this is what God is after. He's, he wants our heart. He wants our heart, and, and when we come to worship him, fulfilling some religious duty, listen, religious duty is no substitute for real devotion. You got that? Religious duty is absolutely, positively no substitute for real devotion. The only worship that God receives is worship that comes from a heart that is fully devoted to him. We're called to love him with what? All. All of our heart. All of our soul. All of our mind, all of our strength, all of us. Religious duty is no substitute for real devotion. Amos's lament also reveals this. Number two, they were switching rhetoric for reality. You know what rhetoric is, right? Just turn the news on. You'll hear a lot of rhetoric. This is what they were doing. They wanted to look like they loved the Lord. They, they talked like they loved the Lord. In fact, if you look at verse number 14, look at verse number 14. 
says toward the end of the verse that they were claiming what? They were claiming that the Lord was with them. Just because we claim that God is with us, does it mean that God is with us? Just because a church calls itself a church, does it mean that they're a church? Just, you, you get, the, right, just because we say God's with us, just because we say we're worshiping God, does it actually make it legitimate? Are you with me? Like, there, there's, this is what they're doing. They're switching rhetoric. They're talking the talk. They're claiming something, but that wasn't reality. They didn't truly love the Lord. They were self-deceiving themselves into believing that they were right with God, but they only cared about themselves. And that's, you read the whole book of Amos, it's crystal clear. They were only concerned about themselves, period. And they were hoping, they viewed God like, you know, a giant cosmic vending machine where they could punch some numbers and they could go to Gilgal, they could punch the numbers and they could get what they wanted out of this God who gave all this stuff to Joshua and Isaac and Jacob, right? What, how, what was the code? What, what, how did they get what they wanted? This is how they're viewing it. It wasn't reality. In verse number 12 of chapter 5, God says this to them, I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. See the problem? Worship to God is nothing but detestable when there's sin in our lives. It's just detestable to God. What were they doing? What were their sins? Well, this is number three. As he explains, reveals in his lament, he also reveals in his lament that they were supporting injustice and they were benefiting from it. This is a good chunk of, this, of chapter five. Verse number seven those who turn justice into wormwood also throw off righteousness to the ground. That's what they were doing. We've seen this already in the previous chapters, the injustice that was going on in Israel. And God says in verses 10, 11, and 12, they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. They despise the one who speaks with integrity. Think about this. It says that you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him. Verse 12, they oppress the righteousness, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. What's going on? They're taking advantage of the needy, and the needy had no recourse whatsoever. They had no one with the power and the authority to defend them. Now, look, maintaining True justice within the courts of a society is absolutely essential for a nation's survival. And I don't know if you keep up with the news, but it seems to me like our nation's in trouble on this very point. That's how it seems to me. Because a nation can't last long unless its judges and its lawyers and its citizens are honest and execute true justice among themselves. doesn't matter if a person's rich or poor. The law is to be the law and everyone's to be judged by the same standard, not two different systems of justice. And this is what's going on in Israel at the time. 
This is why society always crumbles if the wealthy and the leaders stand opposed to true justice, if they hate honest judges, if they hate honest witnesses, if they abuse and steal from the weak and the poor, if they oppress the righteous, if they take bribes, if they deprive the poor of justice, if they seek to silence the wise and the honest who are striving to build a righteous, just society for the rich and the poor alike. This is... This is why I'm afraid this is exactly what we are seeing going on in this nation right now in front of our very eyes. This should come to a warning as us, to, to us. And it ought to remind us that humanity's still basically doing the same stuff, same kind of sin. It just kind of repeats itself. Over and over again, we're not living in times that have never been experienced before. Well, this brings me to this fourth point of his lament, what he's revealing here. He reveals that they were supposing brighter days ahead, though darkness was on the horizon. If you go to verse number 18 of chapter 5, he says this, he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. And this verse gives uh, some insight into some popular theology that was going on in Amos' time. The day of the Lord, uh, you read this, right, all throughout the scripture, and it's important. It's important in, in eschatology. It's a concept that runs throughout the, especially these prophetic write, writings. And it refers to a complex, the complex events that surround the coming of the Lord in judgment. When the Lord will come and conquer his foes and, and establish a, a rule, a righteous and just rule in the world. And Israel's thinking in this day was that the day of the Lord was this time like would, that God would come and he would defeat their foes. His wrath would be poured out on their enemies. He would fight on their behalf. He would conquer their foes. He would punish the foes with disaster and death and all those people who had ever threatened Israel and that they would be permanently secure from danger, that she would be exalted above all the nations of the earth. So the day of the Lord to the Israelites living in Amos' time was, yeah, the day of the Lord is a dark time, but for everybody but us. If you're an Israelite, this is, this is good stuff. This is like, preach, this is like preaching to the choir, man. Let it preach, Amos. You know, this is, this is what we want to hear. Tell us about the day of the Lord. But what Amos says is, woe. Woe to you who long. They were longing for the day of the Lord. Who won it? They were longing to see God crush their enemies. But what they failed to see was that the day of the Lord was a time when God will judge all sin, including their own. That's what they missed. They thought God was going to judge everybody else's sin. The day of the Lord is about God judging all sin. So they name the name of God. They claim he's with them. They worship him, but they, they're not obeying his precepts. And so Amos is saying, the day of the Lord is going to be a dark day. Look at verse 18. What will the day of the Lord be for you, Israel? 
It will be darkness and not light. And Amos goes on. Check this out. He, he goes on and he describes the terror of that day. And he, he, he takes his illustrations from, from native wilds. And, and he's, he tells his listeners what it's going to be like in verse number 19. He, he gives this hopeless picture. Imagine a man running, you know, toward the Jordan, right? He, he's running in terror. The, the judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. He's running from a lion, lurking in the thickets of the Jordan, and somehow he manages <coughs> to elude the lion only to run into a bear. And so with, you know, he's frantic. What would you do? You're running from a lion, you run into a bear. So what do you, you frantically run, and he runs and he runs and he runs, and at last he's exhausted, he's still shaking, he runs into his home, he slams the door, and he leans on the wall to catch his breath, and Amos says he gets bitten by a snake, and it's fatal, and he dies. What's Amos saying? He's saying this is what the day of the Lord is going to be like. You might get away from the lion and the bear, but you're not going to somehow escape the day of the Lord. You're not going to escape the judgment of God on sin. There's no escape. There's no place to hide. There's no refuge from the foe. Church, this is frightening. And that's exactly what would happen. Sooner than they thought, they would be faced with the Assyrian invasion. It would be a dark, dark day. However, look, the full and the final enactment of that day of the Lord is when God's judgment is poured out upon the whole earth. Paul wrote this. He said, the wages of sin is death. Here's the lament the lamentate, the lament, the song of mourning is simply the truth here is that the wages of sin is death. This is what, what Amos is proclaiming in his song, that there is a penalty, there is a payment for sin. And God's people, the nation of Israel, were guilty of sin. And they would not escape that judgment. And the truth is, despite all the medical and scientific and technological advances since Amos's day, look, people's behavior hasn't changed. We're still living today in a day where we are just as guilty as the people were those many centuries ago, and, and mankind still stands condemned by God, and one day God's wrath will be poured out once and for all on the nations. It will happen. And take it to the bank. You can write it down. It will happen. The wages of sin is death. Well, that's his lamentation. Secondly, we see weaved throughout this poem, this song is an admonition. And the truth here is this. It's on the screen. Falling into God's judgment is not necessary. It's not necessary. God's judgment is going to come. God's going to judge the sin of the nations, but it's not necessary to fall into judgment. The saddest thing about Israel's fall and the fall of anyone into God's judgment is that very thing. It's not necessary. And so all throughout this chapter, as we see throughout the book of Amos, there's this thread of hope, this way of escape. 
This admonition of how to avoid what is coming. Amos is, he's weaved this into the song that there's hope here. And so he says this. Here's the admonition. Number one, seek God. Look what he says in verse number, chapter five, verse <coughs> number four. The Lord says this to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Don't go, he says in verse five, don't seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or Bethel. Don't go, don't seek that. Seek me and live. Verse number six, seek the Lord and live. That's the good news. We don't have to experience the judgment of God. The way out, the, the thread of hope is seek the Lord and live. And this is what Israel's being warned to do. You have to wonder. There must have been some in Israel who are actually still reachable. There are some people in Israel that I believe this message would resonate with. What is he saying? He says, seek the Lord. What does that mean? It simply means to repent. That's what Amos is calling for. He's saying, nation of Israel, turn from your sin. Turn back to the Lord in trust and confidence. This is the message. The word seek there is an imperative. An imperative, it's like a command. It's like, this must be done. If you want to live, seek the Lord. The Lord is the object of their worship. He was to be the object. They were to seek him, not any idol, not anything for themselves. They were simply to seek the Lord. Why? Because the Lord alone is the source of, of hope. The Lord alone is the source of life. Gilgal and Bethel only offered hopelessness and death. So Amos is holding out this gracious invitation to them, which may have been instrumental in some doing this very thing, leading them to seek the Lord. Jeremiah says, you will seek me. God says this through Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isaiah as we read at the beginning of the service, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. It's all right there. Turn from the sin and turn to God and he will have compassion and he will forgive. Amen. 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 Our God is a compassionate God. God, God. God doesn't want to pour out his judgment. He must because he's a just judge. He's, a, he's the lawgiver. He has to follow the law. He, he has to be just. He's holy, as we sang about tonight. He must. But what he, what he actually wants is he wants the people to turn from their sin and to seek him. And if they would, what does he say? Seek the Lord and live. Live. Death was coming. He's singing a funeral song, after all. Death was coming. He says, 
You don't have to die. You don't have... You can live if you'll just seek the Lord. Everyone who truly repents and seeks the Lord will be delivered from the coming judgment. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death as we've already established, but, what does it say, church? Yeah. But the gift of God is what? It's life. Eternal The gift of God is eternal life. This is the message. This is the invitation. Seek the Lord and live. Don't seek empty religion. Don't just go through the motions. You you can go through the motions and come to church every week and read your Bible every day and pray every day. But if you don't seek the Lord, if you don't turn from your wickedness and, and seek him, then you know what to expect pretty clear he says seek god and not religion then the second part of the admonition is to pursue good and not evil he says in verse number 14 pursue good and not evil so that you may live and the lord the god of armies will be with you as you have claimed hate evil verse 15 and love good establish justice in the city and perhaps the lord the god of armies will be gracious to the remnant Israel needed to be a people who practiced justice and delighted in righteousness. He says in verse 24, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. I mean, you know, in these parts of the world, what's more valuable than water? Right? Couldn't live without it. No human can live without it very long, but You think about how necessary it is in places like Israel, places like we live in here in the desert. And God's message is clear. Just like they could not expect to survive without the flow of precious water in the land so the nation would not survive apart from the faithful and moral obedience to the Lord. You see, church, seeking Good and hating evil is a, it's a characteristic of one who loves the Lord with all their heart. And if we find in our, in our hearts where we love evil and we despise good, then that tells us something about what's going on in our heart. And it tells us that we, we, have, that we need to repent and turn from our sin to the Lord. Well, he gives this admonition. He's given the lamentation and admonition, and now he gives an expectation. And, and here's the truth here. What God has said, God will do. And we see this all throughout chapter 5. Verse 4, for the Lord says to the house of Israel. Verse 16, therefore the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says. Verse 17, the Lord has spoken. Verse 27, the Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. What God has said, the message that he has just delivered, it is going to happen. What's going to happen? Let me give you three thoughts here and we'll be done. First of all, God will punish rebellion. This is is throughout the passage. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Seek the Lord, verse 6, and live. Or, look at verse verse 6. Or he will spread like fire 
throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. He brings up Bethel again. All right? Nobody's going to be able to put this fire out when God starts the fire. So he's given them, like, seek the Lord and live, or he will come like a fire. Verse 16 and 17, the Lord says this. There will be wailing in all the public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the streams. The farmer will be called to mourn, the professional mourners to wail. And there will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. See it? What God has said will come to pass. God will punish rebellion. Verse 27, I will send you into exile. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. It's interesting there that Amos God delivering this message through Amos uses this title, the God of armies. And we find that, you read that through the Old Testament, don't you? The Lord of armies. What does that mean? Well, it's first used, I thought this would be important to mention to you here. It's first used in 1 Samuel around the beginning of the Israelite monarchy. Why? Well, God was the Lord over the army, over Israel's army. Israel's army was his army. Well, by the time it's being used frequently in the, in the major and minor prophets, it, its meaning has more to it. And it can be understood to mean not only the Lord of Israel's army, but the Lord of Babylon's army. The Lord of all the armies of the world. Uh, in fact, it can even be used to, to refer to the armies of heaven. And simply the idea, it's, it's the same all the way through, that God has at his disposal armies to do his bidding. Any rebellious nation that God wants to judge, he's the Lord of armies. He's got one to take care of it. Sometimes he uses even wicked nations' armies. The Assyrians, you Google it sometime. Read about how vicious the Assyrians were. They were monsters. They were monsters. God was the Lord of that army. He was able to use that army to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. God could do that today. He could use an army like China, Russia, you name it. God is the Lord of armies. What he has said will happen. He's got all, everything he needs at his disposal to accomplish his purposes. So God will. He will punish rebellion. He also points out here that God will preserve a remnant. This is the good news in all of this. This is the good news. Uh, there are going to be some people who will survive. Look at chapter 5 and verse 3. He, he talks about the city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left in this battle against Assyria. That would happen a few decades after this. Thousand men go out to battle, only a hundred come back. But what does that tell you? There's a hundred left. Look at verse, look at verse number 15. 
the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of another brighter day, a day after the exile, when this chastened, impoverished nation of Israel would return to the land and there would be a day when God would restore his people's fortunes and turn their hearts toward him. So throughout time, church, there has always been this remnant. You can find this all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Bible. Can you think of, think about how wicked things got early, just, I don't know, 1,000 years, 1,400 years after creation? The Bible says in Genesis, is it chapter 6? Things were so wicked that every thought and imagination of man was just horrendously wicked all the time. And yet, you know what? There was a remnant. His name was Noah. What did God do? Noah had, God had Noah build an ark. God saved the remnant from the day of the Lord, from the wrath, the judgment that came upon the earth. And listen, God is always, there's always been a remnant. There always has been. There have always been people, and it, we see it right here in, in Amos' day. There's this, this is this thread of hope. Like, look, this is bad. We're going to be judged for our sin, but let me tell you something. That not, there's going to be survivors. There are going to be those who will seek. Who were the, the remnant? They were the ones who sought the Lord. They were the ones who heard the message, got on their face, and were like, God, we're seeking you. Forgive us of our sin, right? I mean, they turned to the Lord. Those were the ones that, that were spared through the, through the judgment that came upon them. And the truth is, no matter how dark it gets in our nation or in the world today, God still has a remnant. It's called the church. It's called the church. No matter what, whatever happens, whatever army rises up, if it happens in our lifetime, I don't know. Some days you wonder, will we see it? Maybe we will. I hope not. But if an army rises up and conquers this nation, there will be a remnant of people that will be spared. There will be a remnant of people who doesn't mean that we survive it. It just means that God's truth will continue to march on. He will still have people living and and preaching his message, promoting his kingdom, spreading the word, no matter what is going on in the world today. And that brings me to the last thing that I find here in Amos chapter 5 about what God says and what he will do. He's, he, what I believe he implies here is that God is going to provide a redeemer. A redeemer. What was the remnant for? Why was it important for God to preserve? Why, why was a remnant so necessary among the Jews, among Israel? at this time in Amos' day. Why? Because the Messiah was yet to come. This was still hundreds of years out. This was still 700 years off in the distance. Israel could not be completely wiped off the map. They would be judged, but they couldn't be wiped off the map. Why? Because God would provide his Redeemer. He would send the Savior into this world. And church, this is the best news of the entire funeral song. That there's hope, that God is sending a Savior who will conquer death. 
Romans chapter 9. Paul reveals that it was from them, from Israel, by physical descent came the Christ, (coughs) who is God over all. The good news is there is hope for every single sinner because God provided a redeemer. That's good news for me, and that's good news for you. Why? Because we're all in the same camp. We're all sinners. That's good news for every person outside the glass, every person driving by, every person who lives in Peoria, every single person who lives in Arizona, every single person who lives in the United States, in North America, in the Americas, right? I mean, that is good news for every single human being, all eight billion of them living on this planet today. It's good news. Here's what what Romans 6 says tells us the wages of sin is death. Sing the funeral song, Amos. But the gift of God is eternal life. Seek the Lord and live. How? It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hebrews 2, 9 tells us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a short time. Why? so that he might taste death for every man. Our Redeemer came 700 years after all this. Long after the Assyrians came in and wiped out, there was a remnant. 700 years later, at just the right time, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them who were under the law. You see, God sent a redeemer so that every one of us could be saved from the the coming judgment. Salvation isn't just for the Jews. It's not just for religious people. It's not just for white, middle-class Americans. It is for every one. And so falling into God's judgment is not necessary. If you seek the Lord, you'll live. You're going to die in this, from this planet, this body's going to die, but will be as alive as ever in glory. Amen? What a day that's going to be. Here's our next steps. Number one, I will be honest with myself and God about the spiritual state of my heart and worship. I think this is where it has to start. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with God. Am I, is this religious duty to me? Is this, am I doing what Israel is doing? Am I, am I synchronizing my, my Christianity with my idolatry? Is this, is this real? Is this genuine? What's going on in my heart with God? Let's be honest about ourselves. Have we been substituting religious duties for real devotion? Have we been switching rhetoric for reality? God looks at our heart. Is our heart tender to him or has it grown cold? Number two. Next step, number two, is this 
the one you need to take tonight. I will seek the Lord with all my heart, pursuing what is good and hating what is evil. We'll seek the Lord. I'll pursue what's good. I'll, I'll hate what is evil. By his grace, with his strength, with his help. Is this your step? Number three, I will thank God for providing my Redeemer. And I will live for him and serve him with all of my heart. Praise God for sending the Redeemer. Amen. We're just, we're just living in this little, little bit of, you I mean, if, if this room were, were human life on earth, you know, what are we, a little dot somewhere along this vast scope of time? Before humans, there was God eternal on both ends, right? Eternity on both ends and infinity. Here's human existence, and we're just this little speck, and yet God sent his Redeemer into the world because he loved us and he wants us to be saved and to know him and to be saved from the coming judgment. And so tonight, look, just because we, we show up at worship doesn't mean that we're saved, doesn't mean that we're, we're ready to meet God. But it ought to be that when we come to a place like this, we know how to get right and stay right. Amen? And so what next step do you need to take? Could we bow our heads? Pray together. Worship team, you can come.